0: Following seven long years of great tribulation, and in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus Christ, to put an end to the rebellion, this last rebellion of man, under the Antichrist, and to establish his kingdom on this earth, Revelation 20 opens with John seeing a most interesting scene. Verse 1, John sees an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, which we've seen frequently, actually, in the book of Revelation. And he also has a great chain in his hand. John then observes how this unnamed, nondescript angel proceeds to lay hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, which is a direct reference all the way back to Genesis 3. There's no mistaking who this angel is arresting. We're told it's the devil, Satan, as he's known. And he's bound for a thousand years. This angel casts him into the bottomless pit, shuts him up and sets a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations anymore till the thousand years were finished. At some point in our distant future, for a thousand years, Jesus is going to reign on this earth, an earth populated with two different groups of people. If you've got to classify them, you have group A, which we'll call glorified administrators, and then you also have group B, to be fallen citizens. Now, as for the first group, we know, and the Bible says this all over Scripture, that it's the saints of God who will return with Christ, and it will be they who rule with Jesus, acting as administrators in the kingdom of God. This group will include Old Testament believers, you know, kind of the, the heroes of the faith. It will include the church, as well as those that were martyred for their faith in Jesus during the... Tribulational period. Everyone in this collective, so this first group alive on the earth, will live in their glorified bodies. They will be sinless. They'll be unable to reproduce. At the end of verse 5, again John 20, Jesus refers to this group of people as being the first resurrection. And and what's meant by this phrase is that the first resurrection is we or the first collection of people who have died, only to return to earth in a physical state. That's what the first resurrection implies. To this point, John notes how the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. We'll get to that later in the study. In Acts chapter 24, verse 15, the Apostle Paul describes for us two different resurrections of the dead. And if you're like, Zach, why do I care? Well, you're going to die. So the idea of there being the resurrection of the dead, that everyone gets included in that is relevant to you because, well, you're going to die. It's amazing the statistics on death. I did some research this week. One out of every one person dies. It's like 100%. But Paul says, concerning the resurrection of the dead, that there is one of the just, which seems scripturally to happen at the rapture of the church and then manifests on the earth, during the second coming of Christ. But then there's a second resurrection, a second one, of the unjust. As for the second group, John will provide us an account of this second resurrection, of all those who have died rejecting Jesus' offer of salvation at the end of the chapter. Again, we'll cover that in just a little while. Now, as to whom we, the church, will specifically be ruling and reigning over during these thousand years on the earth... Like, who repopulates the earth that the Christians reign over? Well, it will be Christians or believers who have lived through the tribulation to see the second coming of Jesus. Of this group, the evidence presented in the book of Revelation would include those 144,000 Jewish male evangelists. It'll include them. They survive. They're sealed. We'll also include the men and women who have made it to these cities of refuge in that provided safety from the ire of the Antichrist. They will be included. They will be alive. It will also include those, and we don't have a number or an idea, of just anyone that was able to survive the combination of God's judgment, the cataclysmic events on earth, as well as the persecution of the Antichrist. So we have group A, glorified administrators, Old Testament saints, the church, those martyred, the saints. On the earth we have a repopulation of citizens, Again, you would have to be a believer, a Christian, surviving the tribulation, one of the 144,000, those that made it to the cities of refuge, or those that just happened to be lucky enough to make it or survive. So that's the groups that we have. Now keep in mind that the citizens who make up the millennial kingdom, they will have the same mortal body that they had during the great tribulation. It's not as though in the second coming, you are now glorified. That's not the case. As such, this repopulated citizenry will be able to marry during this thousand-year reign of Christ. In addition to being able to marry, they will be able to have children. Those children will have children who will likely have more children. It's kind of how it all works. I mean, it's easy to imagine, right? A thousand years being more than enough time to repopulate the earth with the same levels that we see today. I mean, it's just an incredible thing to imagine. Now, while these individuals will be able to die, because they are an mortal body, because Jesus has restored the earth back to its original design, there does seem to be evidence in the Bible that during this millennial reign, people will be able to live into long ages, into their 900s, like we saw before the flood. One example of this we find in Isaiah 65, verse 20. The prophet says that no more during this time period, the infant... "...shall live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his day. For a child a child will die at a hundred years old." The sinner being a hundred years old will be accursed. So there seems to be some evidence that, again, a restored planet, a restored ecosystem, those that do survive, repopulate the millennial kingdom, will be able to live to uh, great old ages. Now, though the first generation of millennial citizens will have already made the decision to follow Christ during the tribulation I should point out that not everyone who is born during these thousand years will be a believer in fact everyone born during these thousand years will have to at some point in their life make a decision to accept Jesus's sacrifice for sin in order to be saved like this idea will become particularly relevant in just a few minutes now regarding the thousand years I'll give you a few other details if you're interested The Bible tells us that the capital of the world, the capital city of earth, where Jesus established his throne, will be in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, in the city of Jerusalem, a new temple will be constructed and temple services, including sacrifices, will occur as a memorial to God's former work. The Bible describes that once a year during the millennial reign, everyone around the globe will pilgrimage to Jerusalem the Feast of Tabernacles. According to Hosea 3, verse 5, and I find this very interesting, there seems to be again evidence that King David, resurrected, glorified, will be given the specific responsibility of governing the nation of Israel. Again, King David back on the throne. Now, before I move on, I want you to just take a second and consider, I mean, if it couldn't get any trippier, right? Like, how long a thousand years really is i mean just think back to how much the world has changed since the year 1021 a.d a lot of advancements have occurred right i mean we're going from the the dark ages through the enlightenment to today i mean then extrapolate things out let's say to the year 3028 a.d it's a thousand years plus seven for the tribulation if it happened today jesus ruling for a millennia on the earth like, my guess is that when we get to this point, again, this is not biblical, this is just my idea, but by this point, we'll have to, like, we'll have a whole new way of, of classifying time. Like, we have B.C., right, which is what, before Christ, and then we have A.D., or in the year of our Lord. Like, we designate, like, our calendar based upon the first advent. I think we'll, we'll designate the, the next era, or the new era, based upon the second advent. So, no longer the year of our Lord, we'll be in the millennial reign. I think that's pretty cool. With this first generation of millennial citizens living in a still future world, a world different than our own, again, imagine moving out a thousand years, like what type of technological developments will have been achieved? I mean, a thousand years, like what will the world look like, especially when you're living on a restored planet with a perfect government and an equitable economy with Jesus ruling and reigning? There's no question that life during these thousand years will manifest in ways that we can't even begin to fathom. Maybe by then we'll have flying cars. It's also worth considering that by the end of these thousand years, again playing the thought experiment, very few people alive by the end will possess any personal recollection of the tribulation or the Antichrist, or the false prophet, or, or, or what the world was like before Jesus came. Like, you get a whole world of people that don't have a personal, uh, they never saw it. They've only heard the stories. In fact, the second coming, the church age, what life was like on the earth, will be subjects you can imagine taught in kids' history classes. In the first three verses of Revelation 20, John describes the imprisonment of Satan. And it's an imprisonment, understand, not for punishment, but in order to restrain his ability, we're told, to deceive the nations during these thousand years. Now, while the sinful nature of those who live on and repopulate the earth will still exist, and why? Well, because they were born as descendants of Adam. For the first time ever in human history, the fallen tendency, while I have a sin nature, the fallen tendency of, of doing what is wrong? Have you ever noticed that that it's way easier to do what's wrong than right? Th- that's because you're broken. You were born broken. Uh, if, if if you're if you're not sure of the sin nature, I'll let you borrow my two-year-old for a day. Like you don't have to teach a kid how to lie; they just somehow know how to do it, or to be selfish. It comes intrinsically, or what we would say naturally. Yes, anyone born in Adam has a sin nature. But what's interesting is for the first time ever that fallen tendency will be kept at bay. Why? Because it's placed under the authority of Christ, Jesus reigning, but also this restraining of Satan. You see, with Satan, and and we can presume the demonic hosts, locked away, these thousand years under Jesus' reign will present the most incredible millennium of human history. Friends, there will be no war. There'll be no conflict, there'll be no divisions, no race, no rebellion, just an abundance of peace and joy. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace will institute on this globe a perfect society founded upon righteousness or what's right. The culture of the kingdom will be one of holiness and goodness. You know, the contrast between all of the years of the reign of man On this earth, and the reign of Christ will be stark. It'll be much different. You know, one of the interesting things about this period of history is that even from the beginning, we understand that it has a very defined expiration date. Our passage is clear that we just read that Jesus' reign on this earth over those who still remain with a sin nature would not be indefinite. Instead, we're told in multiple places, over and over again, that the kingdom would last a thousand years. In fact, at the end of verse 3, John leaves the reader, you and I, with kind of an ominous foreshadowing, doesn't he? He writes, look at it, but after these things, after the thousand years, what happens? Satan must be released for a little while. Let's jump down to verse 7 to see what happens. Revelation 20, beginning with verse 7 Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. At the end of these thousand years, John tells us that God releases Satan from his prison. Understand, Satan doesn't escape. It's not a jailbreak. He's set free. He's loosed. And as to be expected, the tempter does what the tempter does. He tempts. Satan immediately organizes another rebellion of man against God. And he does this by deceiving the nations in order to gather them together in an attempt to do what sounds nuts, to overthrow King Jesus. Incredibly, even with Jesus on this this earth... Sitting on his throne, with humanity experiencing the greatest thousand year period of peace and global stability in history, Satan, that tempter, is still successful in his wicked aim. John says that the nations in the four corners of the earth, so this is global in scope, and whose number is as the sand of the sea, so John doesn't even attempt to place a, a, a number to this. They rallied together. In a final rebellion against the Lord, like imagine reading the Bible for the first time, like you get to this point, and this is truly shocking. I, I would I would say that there might only be two other developments more shocking than this: the original rebellion of, of Adam and Eve in the garden. It's like, guys, you had it so good. What are you doing? You've ruined it. And then when humanity nailed their Savior to a tree. I mean, those are the two shocking moments. And then this one. After a thousand years, you're going to rebel? What? Describing this astounding mass of people. John refers to them using this Old Testament title. This first presented for us in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog. Now while we know that the battle recorded in Ezekiel takes place before the tribulation, John's reference here of Gog and Magog, and there's a lot of debate about what it means, but it seems to have, at its most basic level, a geographic uh, intent. It's as though John is letting us know that kind of the instigators, the ringleaders, to this final rebellion will, will come from the nation, the people located due north of the holy city of Jerusalem. Gog and Magog, uh, early derivatives of of Russia, Moscow. Now when you get to this passage of Scripture, if you're like me, and, and if you are, I'm sorry. But if you are, and you're processing things the way that I do, I mean, there are two questions when you're reading through this development that jump off the page to me. Like one, why in the world would God free Satan and allow this one final rebellion to take place. Like what what are you thinking, God? Like seriously, I mean, I mean, as you're reading this, I mean he didn't there's no jailbreak. He was set free. He was bound a thousand years and then loosed. Why? And then secondly, like why would anyone rebel against Jesus? Especially after living under his reign for a thousand years. I mean, those are the two questions that really hit me as I read through this. Why would you lose Satan, and why would anyone believe him at this point? I believe that there are three answers to to these two questions, and, and that these answers kind of intertwine with one another. First, by this point in history, there have been several generations of people born in sin who have never been given an alternative to Jesus. Again, keep in mind, for a thousand years, Jesus has been on the throne, and that's the only reality the vast majority of people have ever known. Jesus. Again, for the vast majority of those alive, life apart from the influence and the reign of Jesus, that life is only theoretical. Jesus was on the throne, the saints, his administrators, there are no competing forces, no competing ideologies, no competing influences. There's no tempter. Like, never forget, the decision of one's will to accept Jesus demands the freedom of one's will to reject Jesus. It's intrinsic to freedom. It's why... God originally placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And they giving man the instruction, don't eat of it. It wasn't as though God was, was laying a trap for Adam and Eve. Like instead, God was giving them a mechanism whereby they could do something important. They could choose to reciprocate God's love back to him. By just being obedient. Again, with no alternative, there's no freedom. Without any freedom, there's no choice. Without choice, there's no love. You're just a robot. But God has not made us automated. He's given us freedom, freedom of will. But that demands an alternative. See, at the end of the millennium, it will be necessary for the tempter to be set free so that the sinful men living under the reign of Jesus could be placed into a position Where they have to make a choice now. For the first time in their entire lives, they actually have to make a choice. Do we follow Jesus because we have to follow Jesus? Or do we follow Jesus because we want to follow Jesus? And they have to make this decision. Secondly, knowing what would happen. And allowing this final rebellion to occur. I think God is doing something very profound. Especially here, this is the end of the book. Something that addresses things going on within our culture. I think God is illustrating something that has been true since Genesis 3. And that is the intrinsic fallenness of man's nature. Like, again, we come back to the really unbelievable idea that man would want to rebel against Jesus. I mean, what are you thinking? And and yet, Man does rebel against Jesus, and in truth, we shouldn't be all that surprised. If you've read anything of the 65 books leading up to this one, it shouldn't surprise you that man fails over and over and over again. Keep in mind, in this final future scenario, this last rebellion, like, like man will not be able to blame his rebellion on his environment. Like, Why? He's lived under the reign of Jesus. Like man will not be able to justify his rebellion on some type of like societal oppression or governmental injustice because Jesus has ruled the, rain, the world in righteousness. Like the core idea that people sin because we're sinners and we're not sinners because we sin is demonstrably proven true in this moment. A thousand year reign of Jesus. The first opportunity. Yeah, we're going to rebel. Why? Because man is that broken. You know, back in Eden, man exchanged the perfect world he had been given for one of his own sinful making. And while Adam and Eve had been warned by God what would happen, you know, experientially, Adam and Eve had no idea what that new life would look like. You no, know, that's true, isn't it? Like, Adam's rebellion occurred to an extent with ignorance. Hey, in the day you eat of this, you're going to die. But he didn't understand what that would really look like. God's command's still true. The result's still real. But there was a disconnect. That said, here at the end, at the end of the millennium, man again attempts to exchange the perfect world he's been given for one of his own sinful making. But this time, and it's much different, he is making that choice with the full knowledge of what it would look like. He's no longer acting in ignorance. He realizes what the world would be. With this in mind, and this is the third point, the flip side to this reality As man's rebellion in such a circumstance reinforces the notion, an important notion, that there is no outside remedy to man's inward condition. You know, psychologists have debated, it's, it's kind of a hot topic. Is man a byproduct of his environment or his nature? What makes you you? Where you grow up, how you grow up, who you grow up with, or your genetics. You know, at the end, and man's rebellion here at the conclusion of these thousand years, that question will be completely settled. For man's perfect environment failed to remedy his propensity for rebellion. Wasn't his environment, wasn't his upbringing, wasn't everything around it was something inside of him. In spite of a thousand years of the best life imaginable, the very moment Satan is released, what does man do? He rebels. You see, the simple fact remains. I think, I think you can attest to this truth. Sinners don't like to be ruled. and We don't like to be ruled by Jesus. Now, some of us have come to the conclusion that when I'm ruling, it's a disaster. And that Jesus is much better than the alternative. But there's something within us where we don't want to be ruled. A thousand years, incredibly, after a thousand years of life on this earth, as God has always intended it to be, man buys into the lie that he can make a better life for himself. Isn't that crazy? That Genesis 3 and Revelation 20 present for us the identical scenario. The same deceit. It's not as though Satan's got anything new up his sleeve. Will you trust that God has your best intents in mind? Or that you can do better? Verse 9. So they, this this massive group of people, went up on the breath of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. We had the stage set here for this, this final global conflict. I mean, God's people, the camp of the saints, the holy city, it's surrounded. Oh no. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. <laughs> you got to admit the battle is a little anticlimactic, isn't it? Like the rebellion is put down before it even begins. The world gathers and fire devours them. <laughs> I want to add kind of one more thought to this whole crazy situation. You know, in the end, this final rebellion illustrates an interesting idea. Something that, that didn't really hit me until I was, I was working through the text this time around. And, th- and that's that not even the physical presence of Jesus... In a person's life can change a sinful heart. And we talk about that. There's, there's no outside influence. Even Jesus. Even Jesus. If you, if you were like, man, if Jesus appeared to me, that would change everything. No, it wouldn't. Well, yeah, it would. No, no, it wouldn't. Like, the Bible's pretty clear that it wouldn't. Like, in fact, I don't know if you're aware, but he's, he came once before, and everyone around him, denied him, betrayed him, and then crucified him. Like, I mean, think about it. Judas spent three years living with Jesus, did ministry with Jesus, was on the planning committee for Jesus' international ministry. I mean, Judas was in the crowd, in the hierarchy, in the leadership, three years living with Jesus, and he was still able to reject him, betray him, and in turn, hang himself out to dry. Now Jesus, King Jesus, will rule men in total justice for a thousand years. And even that experience will come up short in yielding a true internal transformation of the sinner. You see, the only thing that can change a man is when his heart of stone is replaced with the Holy Spirit and dwelling you. Changing you from the inside out, changing your desires, changing your passions, changing your pursuits. The only thing that changes a man, it's not any outside influence, it's an internal transformation. It's the Holy Spirit. Now following their swift execution, John tells us in verse 10, he says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus said of hell that hell, also known as everlasting fire, or in this passage, the lake of fire and brimstone, had been originally prepared for the devil and his angels. I hope you know that regarding hell, hell was not made for humanity. Heaven was. And, and it's at this point in time, in history, after this last rebellion, this final deceit, that Satan is not just restrained, but at long last, his sentence is executed. You know, in, in the famous movie, The Usual Suspects, one of the central characters, Kaiser Sose, he remarked, I love this line, he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was conceiving the wor- convincing the world he didn't exist. And there's a truth to that statement. I would add, however, that the second was convincing the world that hell doesn't exist. From country artist Aaron Lewis's song Party in Hell to a scene in South Park that has Satan throwing a luau on the shores of, of, of the Lake of Fire. Common depictions intentionally twist the biblical presentation of hell as being a literal place of divine judgment. Author Mark Twain famously wrote, you go to heaven for the climate, you go to hell for the company. Now right from the jump, you need to know a few things about hell. It's a real place, and Satan is not currently living there. Again, Common depictions are false. Hell is not Satan's home. In fact, it's a place he doesn't want to be. Furthermore, Satan is not the ruler of hell. Never once is he ever presented that way. Nor is hell a place that he and the demons have dominion over. Lastly, probably most importantly, hell is not the place where all the cool kids get to go party for eternity. Like Instead, John is crystal clear that hell is a real place where the inhabitants therein will be tormented, or literally, they will be vexed with grievous pains, both physically and mentally, day and night, forever and ever. Not my words, it's John. In Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus calls hell the place for eternal punishment, adding, then in Mark 9, that hell is a place, this is creepy, where the worm, does not die, and the fire is not quenched. You know, today there is a, a doctrine working its way, not just culturally, but within, within evangelical circles, a doctrine known as annihilation. It's gaining in popularity. And this is the position that instead of a, a place of eternal punishment, well, you might start and hell. There'll come a point where the wicked will just simply cease to be, that you'll be annihilated. The problem with this idea, aside from the fact it's not biblical, is that whether you like it or not, the torments of hell lasting forever are inescapable in light of this particular passage among others. One of the foremost scholars on the book of Revelation, theologian and professor John Walford, he wrote the following about, about the verses we just read. He said, there, there would be no possible way in the Greek language to state more emphatically the everlasting punishment of the lost than here and mentioning both day and night and the expression forever and ever or literally to the ages of ages. Into this point when John records Satan being cast into hell, did, did you notice a, l- a little line he, he tucked in there? He notes of hell that it was where the beast, the Antichrist, and false prophet, note, are present tense back in revelation 20 uh, 19 verse 20 at the second coming of jesus the false prophet and the antichrist are captured and we're told they're cast alive into the lake of fire a thousand years have passed and where are they they're still in hell now i'll admit i'll concede that the topic of hell is not what most would consider to be seeker friendly not. But I, I will contend that I think the topic of hell is the most seeker relevant. And here's why. You know, in the end, of all the people in Scripture that spoke about hell, you know who did it more than anyone? Jesus. A- and why? As, as humanity considers, as you and I make, make a consideration and a determination, as we make a decision concerning our eternity our eternal destination, our eternal fate, as we weigh the pros and the cons, Jesus wanted to be crystal clear, up front, transparent, as to the eternal consequences. It's what Jesus taught on hell more than anyone else. you got a big decision to make. So I should just be clear what the decisions really look like. Can you imagine going to church your entire life Never really giving your life to Jesus, dying in your sins, and hell being—I would be—and you went to church and never heard about it. Oh, because you just can't talk about it, Zach. Well, it's if it's a real place that people I love might go there. I mean, what is love not to talk about it, or to be honest about it, or to address it? And regarding hell, always know that no one is ever forced to go there. Again, hell was not made for man. Man chooses to go. Verse 11. Then, so after this last rebellion is swiftly put down, John says, I saw a great white throne. Great in first status. It's great. White indicates purity, righteousness. Thrones, absolute sovereignty. This great white throne. John says, and I saw him who sat on it. From whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now now this image of of the earth and heaven uh, fleeing away, have fled away. The the phrase doesn't mean that they they have disappeared or dissolved, but it's to articulate kind of the ultimate finality about what's going to occur. Uh, Regarding him who sat on the throne of this great white throne, uh, this judgment, you don't have to speculate. According to John 5, the ultimate judge of the wicked will be Jesus Christ. So John sees this great white throne. He sees Jesus sitting on it. What's about to happen is consequential. John says, and I saw the dead, small and great, so no one can escape the moment, standing before God. Now, back in verse 5, as we noted, John recorded how the rest of the dead, or those who had died rejecting Jesus, didn't live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the the manifestation of this. We have now this massive group of people who did not live in this thousand years who have been in a place known as Hades awaiting this very moment. Now, in in what you can call the second resurrection of the dead, the dead are brought to the earth to face the judgment of Jesus. What results, according to John's description back in verse 6, is the second death. If you choose to reject Jesus and you want nothing to do with Jesus and you're like, I appreciate it, but I- I'm going to stand before God on my own because I'm a good person. Like I don't need, I don't need all that stuff. I'll, I'm a good person and it'll be fine. If you reject Jesus and his offer of salvation, what will happen when you die, Jesus will say, I never knew you and you'll be sent to Hades. It's a place of holding, and you will be there forever until this moment. And it's at this moment that you will be brought before Jesus again, the second resurrection, and you'll be sentenced. Like I only say that because what we're about to look at, if you die rejecting Jesus' offer of salvation, which is your prerogative, no pressure, just being honest, this, what we're looking at, will be your future. We're told in books were opened. And I like that. If you're going to be judged, you'd like a written record, not just hearsay. So we have evidence here that there has been a very detailed accounting of your life. John says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And this is the record of who's accepted Jesus. It's also known as the Lamb's book of life and other passages. If your name is not found in this book or it's been blotted out, you're in big trouble. It's kind of the, the the Cliff Notes version. The dead were told, were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. It's important to point out that John is not describing a trial. This is not a trial. He's describing more, more accurately compared, this is the uh, final sentencing. Everyone standing before God and their sin has already been found guilty. Why? Well, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life, and Jesus Christ our Lord. But you rejected Him, so now you're standing before God without any Savior, without any atonement. You're going to handle it. Hell will be everyone's destination. And yet the Bible does indicate, and I think that this is important, that a person's experience in hell, everyone will go to hell, but a person's experience will be determined, look at the text again, why? According... To their works. Like, what this means is that every sinner will not receive the same punishment. Like, in God's justice, because God is just, He will judge righteously according to the good deeds and the wicked acts that you've committed in this life, which should be really reassuring because uh, you won't get the same sentences as, as Hitler, right? you're like, yeah, I rejected Jesus, but I felt like I lived a pretty good life, why am I getting the same punishment as the guy that exterminated six million Jews? Like, that doesn't seem just. That's okay. Because God is going to judge everyone according to their works. And if you're like, well, that's good, because I do a lot of good things. Do you? Really? You do a lot of good things. Why do you do good things? Well, I, I like, you know... Like I like people seeing it and thinking I'm a good. Pr- oh, so you do good things selfishly. Like for your for your own benefit, or f- do you do it selflessly or to be seen? Well, to be seen, but I still do good. Well, no, no, that's that's selfishness. So you got to cross those out. Like, for for acclaim, cross those out. Like, how many good things do you really do? And then you're going to be judged about the, the the evil ones too. And, and then when it, when it, it's like, okay, well, I, I understand those bad things that I do. Well, well, let's actually build on that for a moment. So what does the Bible say about wicked deeds? It's not, like, sin is not just what, what you do, but, like, if you're in a situation and you know the right thing to do and you, just, and you know the wrong thing to do, but you just make the decision to do nothing, that's called a sin of omission. So it's still a sin, so that's going to go on that pile, too. So, like, even, even the, b- the bad things you do, that, that'll be accounted. And, and all the good things you failed to do will also be accounted. And it's like, man, well, I keep my mouth shut. Yeah, but God knows all the thoughts of man. So, like, even the things that you said in your mind that didn't come out of your mouth, well, that's also going to go on that pile. Like, the point is, is that, like, that pile's going to be big. And you might do a few good things, but in comparison... You see what I'm saying? It's just a bad dynamic. Now, everyone will be judged accordingly, individually. Now, what does that look like in practicality? It it could be evidence that there is maybe a tiered system to hell. I think commonly depicted in Dante's Inferno, like that there are levels of hell. And so according to how bad you were, You've got Hitler and, and the, you know, the terrible people down here. And then maybe you're, you're all in the lake of fire. It's just like, how deep are you in the fire? It could also be that, uh, as C.S. Lewis wrote about this, that, that it might be kind of like, like everyone has a different misery index or just the capacity of the experience. Either way, what you should take is you don't want to be in this situation. <laughs> one. And two... Um, Hell will be absolutely just. It will be just. Hell is the just consequence for all those who reject Jesus. Again, no one's in hell because they were forced to be there. But rather they chose to be there. Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Those in Davy Jones' locker. And death in Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged. Each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's an old adage that really does ring true. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. And what that means is that if you're born once, but you reject Jesus and thus don't experience a rebirth, well, there'll be two deaths, one physically and then one for eternity. But if you're born twice, not just physically, but you're born again through the indwelling of God's Spirit, you're born twice, there will only be one death. And that death is hardly anything. It's but a transformation. And in this moment, I mean, this is what all of eternity is building towards. I mean, this is, there's a culmination here and this great white throne judgment. And we can say that at this point, your takeaway, the last echoes of sin, when this happens, the last echoes are gone. Satan is gone. The wicked are gone. What began so many years earlier in the Garden of Eden has been finished. Death, moving forward, will be filed away As a distant memory. Again. I need to reiterate. That anyone not found written in the book of life. Made a personal decision not to be included. In the book of life. And while this might be the most consequential moment in human history. (laughs) Please understand it is the most avoidable. This whole scenario is so avoidable. Anyone not found. Well, they rejected Jesus' offer of eternal life. You could be found. Jesus is like, if you're lost, I've come to find the lost. You don't have to be lost. I can find you. You say, hey, here I am. And I, here I am. Cool. You don't have to be lost. You can be found. But anyone in this dynamic rejected Jesus, rejected his life, rejected his salvation, and then therefore made the decision, I'll take it upon myself what comes next. So don't be ignorant of what comes next. If you still want to do it, go for it. You're stubborn, that's cool. But don't be ignorant, don't be foolish, at least know the truth. In his classic book, The Great Divorce, which I would highly recommend, C.S. Lewis wrote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Please understand why it's necessary that hell be a place of eternal punishment. You see, an Imperfect being, which is what you are, can never make a perfect payment, which is what sin requires. The wages of sin is death. Logically, this means that it will take a sinner dying for all of eternity to satisfy a debt that can't be satisfied or or that incurs interest and therefore never ends. Let me paint a picture for you. If you only have a thousand bucks a month to pay off a credit card that is earning fifteen hundred dollars a month in interest fees how long will it take you to pay off the card forever because you're making an imperfect payment it falls short you'll never get there this is why what was the remedy well, God had to offer a perfect, sinless sacrifice in his son Jesus to effectively pay off the permanent debt that your sin demanded. But in the end, your sin will be ultimately addressed in one of two places. It can be permanently resolved at Calvary by Jesus, or you can make a continual payment in hell for all of eternity. You can be saved by a faith that works. Or you can spend eternity working to pay off a debt you never can. And the choice is entirely up to you. Now next Sunday, we're going to work our way through Revelation 21 and and discuss what eternity after all of this is going to look like. It really is, you should read ahead, it's one of the most amazing and detailed sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. Like God did not want us regarding our eternity to not be in the know. He didn't want it to be a mystery. I mean, it's so detailed and specific and fine-tuned. It's an incredible section of Scripture. That said, I don't want to move any further into our narrative without really getting back to the main thing. From the very beginning, we've noted that the purpose of this book is to reveal to us certain aspects of the person of Jesus That we wouldn't know otherwise. It is the revelation. The unveiling of Jesus. That's how the book opens. It's the thesis. We want a revelation. That's not provided in the four gospels. And with that in mind. There are two big takeaways. From this passage. Concerning the person of Jesus. (laughs) Let me add. That what I'm about to say will be rough. First. You want to take away about Jesus? Here's the first one. Jesus is absolutely unforgiving. (laughs) I know that that sounds odd. Especially when you consider that he died on a cross to pave the way for forgiveness. But it's quite true that in this chapter, Jesus is not a savior. He's the judge. It's this other part of his person. This unveiling. Within this chapter, you have an innumerable mass kept in Hades while Christians enjoy earth and a kingdom for a thousand years. And then when it's over, these people are finally raised to life for what? To be judged by Jesus and cast into hell for eternity. It's a hard picture, but it's true. Like we find in this passage, at this point, no invitations given. There are no final chances being extended, no appeals heard, or grace mentioned. Concessions are not made, no forgiveness is bestowed. What takes place at the great white throne, yes, it feels cold, and in many ways kind of a matter of fact. People stand before God, books are open, lives evaluated, sentences administered. Why is this the case? Though Jesus came to pay the penalty for any and all sin you may have committed, no matter how heinous or depraved the deed may have been. And please know that. There is one thing that Jesus cannot and will not forgive because he couldn't remain just. So your rejection of his sacrifice for your sin, he can't forgive. He can't. This is the most consequential decision that you make. For it determines what comes next. And let me explain why. Following Adam and Eve's rebellion and God laying out the curse, in Genesis 3 verse 24 we read, So God drove man man out of the garden and placed a cherubim, an angel, at the east of the garden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I'm not going to get too far into the weeds, but God here, he graciously eliminated man's access to the tree of life. And he did this to institute human death. Why? To separate man's existence, your existence, into two phases. The temporal, the one you're in now, and the eternal, the one to come. And because of this, and a twist, an interesting twist, God did something amazing. He said, you're going to have to make a decision about eternity. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to let everyone alive have a taste of hell. Welcome to our world. This fallen world, where we're born in a fallen condition. You see, everyone knows experientially what life is like firsthand apart from God. What this separation, what sin is like. It's as though God's like, hey, before you buy hell, I'll give you a test drive. See if you like it. The world. At its best, life apart from God, man at the helm, you have a decision. You see, if you reject this fallen world and are reconciled to God through His Son, death ends this hell as you instantly enter His glory. However, if you choose this fallen world and reject Jesus, death will simply continue your torment. As you are cast forever from his presence. The incredible reality of death is that it affords man the choice he would have never been given if he could have lived forever having access to the tree of life. Man could continue in his hell, but because of the way God orchestrated it, he has the the chance to choose a new life to be lived eternally in the presence of God. Death allows you the chance to choose a different existence in eternity. You can choose heaven as opposed to hell. Friend, if you do long for something better, please know that God, he sent his only son to make a way. But the eternal life that he offers is available right now. It's been said for the believer, this life is the closest to hell we're ever going to get. And yet for the unbeliever, this life is the closest to heaven you're ever going to get. In Christ, the lowest point in this earthly life will be the lowest point you'll ever experience. And yet, apart from Christ, the highest point of this life will be the best it's ever going to get for you. And you can make the choice. Secondly, and we'll close with this. So Jesus is unforgiving. But secondly, Jesus' love is utterly boundless. That's what I take away from this passage. And I mean, serious, it blows my mind. blows my mind that if you, created by God and in whose Son came and died so that you might have life in that more abundantly, if you would prefer an existence apart from Him, it blows my mind that Jesus will honor your choice when you die by allowing you to live for all of eternity apart from Him. You know there, there are some people who love to ask, and they, and they do this rather condescendingly. They say, how can a God of love send someone to hell for all of eternity? Well, first, God doesn't send anyone to hell who hasn't chosen to go there. Secondly, how can God be loving and so blatantly violate your free will by forcing you to spend all of eternity with Him when you've spent this entire life making it clear you want nothing to do with Him? Like, in such a scenario where you're like, Jesus, I want nothing to do with you, and you die, and he's like, yeah, you're coming to heaven, hanging out with me forever. That would be, in its own way, a twisted version of hell. You see, I see the very existence of hell as being the greatest manifestation of Jesus' love for the sinner, second to probably the cross. And one act of love, Jesus died in order to save. And yet in the other, Jesus dies all over again when he lets go of the one rejecting his salvation. I've said it before, I'll say it again. God is not a spiritual rapist. He forces himself on no one. God's a divine gentleman who in the ultimate act of his love will honor your decision to reject him in spite of everything he's done to persuade you and to woo you otherwise. Legendary singer Johnny Cash, a man who had come to know his own personal demons very well, he once said the following, he says, How well I have learned that there is no fence to sit on between heaven and hell. There is a deep, wide gulf, a chasm, and in that chasm is no place for any man. Friend, as long as you're breathing, you can still decide where you'll spend eternity.